Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the podcast. Today is going to be a little different. I have my good friend Peter Watts here, which hopefully you'll learn a little bit about today. He's an outstanding individual and I'm just grateful to have him in my life. Um, also, he might play a little host today. So as you guys have probably heard, I have a good bit of experience in the movement world as a movement practitioner and a teacher of movement. And it's been asked of me recently to create some kind of reference to express um, the way I've been teaching and my philosophy over the years in a gym environment. And I really haven't found the best way to convey that message to folks. So uh, it was recommended that I should have someone just ask, you know, beat it out of me. So I brought Peter, my good friend here, who can speak a little bit uh, firsthand of like his experience of um, kind of the, the delve into my movement world and what that meant for him. And along the way, maybe help bring some of my message uh, out into the air that maybe it could reach your ears and you could find some value out of it. So first of all, uh, Peter, welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. Uh, I know that at some point I knew you would be on this in some <laughs> capacity, and Peter's quite talented himself, and at some point we'll talk a little bit about what he uh, gets into and maybe um, how his services could be of good use for you guys out there too. Peter, say hello to the audience. Hey, what's going on? Um, I'm really happy to be here because I feel like I've seen this whole progression for you and Sarah, and it's um, I don't know. It's been really fun to watch. I'm just super stoked to be able to to support them. Cool. Thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah. Um, so a little bit about Peter too before we get into it. He he definitely anchors me in like the lighter side of life. I know that I have a history of like taking myself maybe too seriously, and if I go too long without. Peter in my life, I get it, problems arise. I feel like he's the one that I can't be around without laughing. I just find him really funny, which has been a good lesson for me of like the importance of laughter and to keep people in your life that make you laugh close and don't let them get too far away. It's good medicine. I like to consider myself the SpongeBob to his Squidward. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'm Patrick. So when know. we met Peter, 
you were you were already really physically active. Um, well, I mean, I'll yeah. So I mean, we met at a really interesting period in my life where, um, yeah, I think I was twenty nine, and up until that point, I was actually, I mean, a smoker. Like I drank too much. I um was really struggling in just a lot of areas in my life and to try to keep it shorter I you know to quit smoking I I got into running and I had this whole thing where if um you know if I ran a mile I would allow myself to smoke a cigarette that that's why I told myself that I'd run that mile and then I wouldn't want a cigarette and then I found that running really just helped me with my mind, helped me address some of the anxiety, all this stuff. And I don't have to do much. I'm either all in or all out. And um, so I went from running a mile to two miles to spending, you know, four hours. Did you get hours. to smoke two cigarettes if you ran two miles? <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Like when I would run though, I would never, I'd be like dry heaving in my neighbor's bushes. Um, and it, it did something to assuage that uh, general like anxiety or the, the tension I was feeling and that craving for a cigarette because I never really wanted the cigarette. I wanted the reprieve that the cigarette provided. Um, however, running quickly progressed into spending about four hours trail running in the park with my dog. And then I started to notice some discomfort in my knee uh, you know, after my run and then toward the end of my run and then in the middle of my run. And then I got to a point where as soon as I started running, uh, there was discomfort. And that's when I approached Sarah about some training and she suggested I work with you. And that's how I wound up. Um, geez, I mean that it's interesting to think about it because so much of what I'm doing with my life now and my whole approach to to movement is based on you know what I saw personally with you and then the the foundation that you laid for me when I later began working with you. Oh, cool. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. That's good to hear. I'm glad it was helpful for you. And it was really uh, kind of an honor to be part of your journey to watch that all unfold for you and watch you. you. You had, I remember, a pretty open mind. I think one of the obstacles I run into in the gym environment is most people come in with their ideas already set in their mind so much because everybody has some kind of like history of exercise whether it was like from high school sports or what they saw in a magazine or whatever and you're always you always there's always some undoing of belief systems first before you move forward and when people come in with like an open mind really looking to learn it's just so much more successful and i remember you made some uh, a lot of strides right out of the gate but um, yeah, I thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned like cigarettes and I came from a place, like I wasn't always a health enthusiast either. And um, just, I mean, many of the listeners might have already heard a little bit of my background, but a long history of like drug and alcohol and well, what's up? I remember like one of the early interactions I had with you because I think when I started working out at the gym, um, I needed to take a break from everything. So no drinking, no, and obviously like, I think cigarettes were kind of out of the picture at that point, no recreational drug use. And I remember 
telling you, I think you like had asked me like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Are you going out like and have a drink or something along those lines? I'm like, oh, well, I'm not drinking. And you just couldn't wrap your brain around the fact. <laughs> you were like, well, what do you do for fun? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, walk, talk to people, all the stuff that yeah. you know, we do all the time now. But I think that is, um, it's in... I'm going to go off on tangent. So if you need to reel me in, just let me know. It's but okay. I, I got think, my fishing rod over here. I think where I like to think that I shine as a trainer, and I think this is something where you know you have power as well, is you know, I certainly didn't come from a fitness background. And, that, and then just being as self-destructive as I was, and then eventually making these really big changes, I think it allowed me to push back against those narratives that people would have about themselves as far as like, oh, it's hard to change because I've always, oh, like I've always done this or I've always been this way or I always did this thing this way. And, you know, just to show people that you can choose in any moment how you want to show up to life. Like it takes a while to, you know, start a new behavior or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but it's all possible. Like you are choosing the life that you're living right now. So if you're not happy, do something different. Do something different. Arrange your minutes differently. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, um, I remember when I started, it was when I got into exercise, I was coming from a really unhealthy stage in my life where I was pushing 240 pounds, uh, really with no muscle, which probably would have been fine if I was like seven and a half feet tall. But at five foot eleven, it was not very ideal, and um, and I remember Sarah signed me up for like a five k, and I got really upset because I wasn't interested in running a five k, <laughs> and uh, I guess I took it as a hint, and I and I don't know, it sparked something in me. I knew I needed something, and I started to uh, to run, and I just started to train. So I went out there, and I think I made it about a half mile my first day. And, you know, wanted to die. And um, How old were you? Let's see. I was probably 25 or 26 at the okay. time. I'm 43 now. Yeah. And I hadn't run since, like, high school wrestling. And I wasn't good at it then. Um, and then, but I had this race on the schedule. And I didn't want to, like, fail. I wanted to finish a race. And I had no goals as far as times or anything. But I remember like having that race on my calendar kept me motivated so that every other day I just would go out and run again. And I was still like really unhealthy and not eating in a way that probably served me very well. But my body started changing. The running got a little easier. I was still like slow, but it got, I was able to do more and, you know, it got a little bit faster. And then I did the race and at some point, like I started to change my food a little bit. Like I still ate pizza and burgers like every day for lunch. Oh yeah, carb loading. (laughs) (laughs) But like at dinner, it'd be like a little bit more mindful. Like there'd be a little note of mindfulness where it was like, oh, I'm gonna try to get nutrition, whatever that means. I wasn't real clear what that meant. I just know that it was like a conscious action at that point where like I wanted to put something healthy or what I thought to be healthy on the plate. And, uh, you know, I, I probably lost 10 or 15 pounds along the way training for that race. And then I, I was afraid to stop. So what I did is I signed up for another race like a month later. Well, that became a bit of a obsession or addiction. So I would always be racing. 
because it kept me in training. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like I wanted, I started to have like some some goals as far as progress. But really, I just wanted to keep going. What uh, do you think racing and training was doing for you during that time? Well, the racing itself was exciting. Like on right. race day, with all like the energy of thousands of people around you, or even if it was a small race, it was dozens of people. Like there was an excitement amount around it and a sense of community that I I probably was missing in life. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we are a tribal species and there was like this tribal component of it that like, you could be slow, but you're welcome here. You know, Mm -hmm. we're all runners too. You know, we all have that sickness. Come join the club. Yeah. 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 And, um, and then I got, uh, a taste of triathlon. Sarah's father, actually, he used to do a bunch of triathlons, uh, inspired me to like get on a bike and um that was interesting i got a chance to my first triathlon was actually one of the more challenging olympic distance triathlons in the country which just happened to be kind of in my backyard where i grew up and i rode that race on the same bike that he rode it 20 years earlier oh wow almost on the same set of tires but i was smart enough to change the tires right before the race yeah but um but that was kind of nostalgic for me. It was uh, sentimental and meant something to me. And then where are we on the timeline? Is this like... So this is, I was probably running foot races for, uh, I would say, a year or two before I got into triathlon. And then I got just captivated by triathlon. And I did about 35 races, triathlons, along with a lot of foot races along the way, over like a seven-year period. What was your training looking like? Were you, did you have a coach? Oh, at this time, like, I didn't even know what I was doing. Yeah. (laughs) I was just like spending time running, spending time in the pool, spending time biking. That sounds super familiar. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, but along that way, I was fortunate. So I hooked up with a training partner. It was like a client of mine from an old business that I was in. And he was like a legit athlete. He was a 408 miler in college. Hmm. So that like these days, that's not even won't even get you to nationals. But like that's if you've ever been next to somebody running that fast, yeah, it's fast. It's, kid alive. it's so <laughs> fast. So, um, but I would train with him because he was getting in the triathlon too, and like I was a little bit better than him in the pool and the bike. But then you know he could blow me away on foot. But it was like one day a week we could kind of work together. Like I could right. suck win and just hang on for dear life on his like off running day and we could mm-hmm. at least hang out together but i was fortunate he happened to be like a really gifted manual therapist mm-hmm. and he would give me these treatments after our workouts sometimes that really uh taught me that i knew nothing about the body because yeah. he would like my back would hurt and he would like work on my first or second rib under my collarbone or something and the back pain would dissolve. And that was like a glimpse into like, wow, there's a lot about this body I don't understand. And then I was fortunate enough, actually his, like his guru who's out in, uh, I think, uh, Colorado who like wrote the book on manual therapy back, you know, a few decades ago. What's the name? Do you remember? Johnson. I want to say Mark Johnson. I could be wrong on that. What about the guru guy? Yeah, that guy. Hmm. So, he invited me out there for like a teaching session where I could be like the guinea pig where he's teaching all the kids, the students that are in like the fellowship there, um, you know, 
part of the therapy philosophy. So I was on the table for like a couple hours while, you know, the master would like do an adjustment of some sort and it would always be really subtle. And then, and it was awkward too, because all the kids, all the students got to try the adjustment. Right. So like I'm laying on this table in my underwear with like all these like 20 year olds that I've never met all getting a turn to like, you know, adjust my coccyx or something, oh, which wow. is, you know, a little invasive and there was, <laughs> <For sure. laughs> it was a little embarrassing. <laughs> I remember him joking, like I was fortunate that they weren't doing an internal adjustment that <laughs> yeah. day. But, um, but the More cool unfortunate. Thing, <laughs> the cool thing was, is like after every adjustment, they would like retest and you would just walk down the hall and walk back and you, in like my, the way that I walked would be transformed mm-hmm. every round. And again, that was just like lighting light bulbs into me. Like I knew I loved movement and there was like, I had no idea what was going on, but I was getting like a glimpse into the abyss. Right. Like, wow, this is such a complex system um, and I'm such a beginner. And I knew how to exercise, but that was it, really. I knew how to do work in, in uh, exercise-related activities. And so that was an interesting progression. And then I, I got lucky enough to um, get involved with what is now Strong First, which used to be RKC. And... I got an introduction to the kettlebell through the work of Pavel, and I want to say his name right, Saucelline. I think I'm, I might be butchering that. But um, that was like very eye-opening for me. And I learned a little bit about strength training as a skill set. Mm. And I, I knew at that point that I wanted to get stronger. And they were... So how'd you, how'd you hear about strong first? Mm. I think it was through, you know, it's funny. I think my mother-in-law actually brought home, she was working for like an international finance company in DC Mm -hmm. and they had a gym in the basement of the building and there was a workshop going on with one of the instructors, strong first instructors or RKC instructors back then. Um, And she just brought home like a flyer. It was like, you might be interested in this. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been hearing about kettlebells. I want to go learn. Had you done any strength training prior to that? Nothing that had any like legitimate, scientifically based structure to it. What did you think about strength training before entering into the Strong First program? Um, I probably, hmm, it's a good question. I might have even thought it was just like, like overrated or not as relevant as people made it out to be. I think for me, I, in reflecting on my experience, I have you know, gone or I had gone to the gym like a handful of times before working with you. And I think the only, the, my only thoughts around strength training were, were strictly aesthetics. Like um, I think something that I appreciate about my time with you, I was like, oh, there's like, yeah, if I want to improve just like my quality of life or be more resilient or have a body that is just able to meet the demands that I place on it, like all the stuff that I, I value now, I, I didn't realize that strength training would, I didn't realize I think at first that that was possible or important. Um, I only saw the stuff at the gym. It's just a bunch of meatheads trying to get, you know, like big shoulders, big chest, all that. Right. Um, so I was just kind of curious as to what your thoughts because I think most most of the clients that we work with tend to have that impression as well like everyone comes in because they want to have like abs and right. um, 
you know, yeah, I don't or remember exactly how I felt. I mean, at this time, I was also uh, having a, a fairly regular like yoga practice, and I guess I was learning more of like inward work, and I thought, and I felt like, you know, that was more of interest to me, and strength was less relevant, hmm. um, and I was getting a lot out of that. I still didn't really know what I was doing it seemed like and then and then I got introduced to Greg Cook who's the co-founder of the functional movement systems and that was a big turning point because it shifted the way that I looked at movement in general Um, one of the things that that that's great about that system is it makes the practitioner like an observer of movement because it's a system where you basically assess people and allows you to so you say a practitioner meaning like the person actually doing the movement or the person who's Some, instructing? Yeah, someone that's in the movement field. Okay. Yeah, so it, it got you looking at the way your clients move from a different angle where mm-hmm. you're... Well, let me rewind a little bit here because before this, I wasn't even in the movement field. So I was racing for a while, mm-hmm. was not actually in the field. It wasn't until... Um, I just like happened to take a personal trainer test because Sarah had the book laying around and I was flipping through it just to like learn for my own uses because I was exercising. And after I read the book, I was like, I'm going to take the test. And then I passed the test. I did really well. And I went like a year still not doing anything other than my own exercise. After like a year, her Sarah's mom had a Pilates studio locally and I was thinking, um, I want to try teaching. I have this certification. I might as well put it to use. So I started teaching other triathletes, like fitness. How'd the first few interactions go? It was weird. Like, actually, it went well, but the feedback was really good. I didn't know what I was doing. Right. But, like, the feedback was like, you're good at this. Interesting. But I didn't know that I didn't know I was doing it. Maybe it's because the life experience was different because when I started training people, I had you telling me I was bad at all this stuff. That's funny. (laughs) Instantly. Well, I just remember like the first few times training clients and then either they do, I think there's like stuff like learning the verbal cues on it. Um, Yeah, just like knowing what to say to get them to do the thing. Like I know what I want them to do. And then I'll try to say that. And either they'll do something completely different than what I said, or they'll do exactly what I said and I realized that I worded it wrong. And I wasn't sure. I was just kind of curious as to what your initial, um, you know, Yeah, I mean, queuing. I remember not, like, thinking that I knew what I was doing, but now I know that I didn't know what I was. I knew very little. My tool yeah. set was very small. but um, But I guess somehow my personality fit well for that at the time and the feedback was good so and that got me thinking oh i want to do more of this so i started doing some more of it and then when we uh moved and built a house there was i was looking for an opportunity to go into it full time and there was an opportunity to take over a local gym and do training there and then that's where i really dove in and made it more of a full-time job and um, after, and that's where I really started teaching people one-on-one, and that's where that functional movement system really helped me because it started, instead of like teaching exercise, you really became an observer of movement. So you, it taught you how to, and, 
you know, since then, I kind of disagree with some of the stuff they do, but it was really useful at the time. And it's, I think it's helped the industry tremendously making observers out of teachers where they have a system that allows you to assess people and you're basically assigning uh, a number, like a value, like you're, you're quantifying the quality of someone's movement. Is that where you got into the basic movement patterns or was that more original strength? That was the first glimpse of it because in that system, they will, when you're trying to, if somebody doesn't score well on a certain test, you do try to go backwards kind of more primitively to more primitive um, orientations to work on them. Now, Hold on, so def we'll probably need to go slower here because I know what you're saying, but I don't know. So we're going to get, yeah, so I'm So what is a I'm, primitive orientation? Okay, so um, I guess let me finish my course of where we went and then we'll probably dive pretty deep I just deep don't want to fight about that. it anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mr. Non-confrontation. All right. So uh, eventually, after that, I seeked out a coach. And I found a coach locally that um, had a just tremendous resume in both of those organizations that I was already interested, FMS and, and uh, what? Strong First. Strong First. And um, he did, I think, the fellowship out at Exos where a lot of the like top athletes train. And it was, and he seemed to be, have a tremendous skill set in the application of concepts. So in that process, working with him, I learned like really how to compi comprise like a, a program and how to take ideas of a system and then integrate them into your practice. So I worked with him for a few years and that I like, I turned a lot of corners in that. And a lot of it was learning about mindset and getting out of my own way and really like the approach to the process. And that taught me how to um, embrace just a process focused practice more than like, a goal-oriented practice much more successfully. Um, <clears throat> but I still felt like in the gym where I was working, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't really have, <clears throat> excuse me, like a sip of water. the, I guess like the scaffolding to put it all together. So I had like these bits and pieces from like working with this manual therapist and my yoga practice and exploring on my own and running and racing and biking and cycling uh, and swimming and and learning you know how to swing kettlebells and throw them over my head and uh then i went to all these workshops with this guy you know that was my coach that were like deep dives on certain concepts within movement and then like it was all like jumbled and then I read this book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Which I haven't is, heard of it. <laughs> so that's probably uh, my favorite book. I've read more than any other book. I think I've read it about six times now. And that book, which is about a lot of things, but um, it gave me like the scaffolding in my mind to take all the bits and pieces that I've learned and apply it with like an algorithm and a system so that when there's a person in front of me, 
it led, I could ask a series of questions that led me down to what should I do right now? Um, and what that ultimately means is identifying like where the goal is, like the direction that it is, and not really being attached to that goal, but it allowed me to identify what's the actual activity that we do now and how do we do it so that it aligns with the direction that is desired. So are you saying that, that it helped you think more deeply about the why of whatever it is that we're yeah, doing? Yeah, absolutely. Like in the book, there's a, a, there's a lot of analogies here, but one of them would be like the motorcycle itself. And the, the book's not really about motorcycles, but uh, in the book, the motorcycle is like technology. And you could either add utility. So let's say you're doing an intervention with the technology to change it. Let's say it's, you're trying to interact with how this thing runs. You can either add utility, meaning making the experience better for the rider to ride this thing down the road or detract. So I thought of the human organism as the technology. And the goal is, to get this thing riding well down the road, providing more utility. Because like somewhere inside you, your body is you. We, where we know that we're not really our bodies per se. Like you, you're filled with a bunch of cells here. But like 10 years ago, none of those cells were there. Yeah. They were all different cells. But you were still in there somewhere. And hopefully like 10 years from now, you'll still be around here. And there'll be like a whole new set of cells but you'll still be in there somewhere. So on some level, I viewed the body as housing something. And, you know, that's a long conversation, how you want to identify what it's housing for a different, pod, a different episode. But I felt like the body's housing the you that's inside. How do we add utility? How do we make this body serve the you that's inside better? And when I think of better, you're talking about a goal and without being attached to it, but trying to identify it so you know if your decisions kind of point that way i looked at it as well we're a human organism you know whether you believe in evolution or not i believe in evolution but even if you don't you could probably find like space in your mind to think we're designed to survive mm -hmm. so you know think of well i want to survive as long as i can as well as i can and that's kind of the direction. And we could call that longevity or quality of life, health span, things like that. People, you, you know, those are interchangeable probably. So I would think like, well, what did we have to do to survive? Well, we needed to be able to, you know, find food, hunt for food. You had to be able to not be the food for something else. You had to be able to procreate. You had to be able to fight battles or avoid battles. You had to be able to build shelters and move those shelters and maybe cover ground and try to get a, a feel of what the weather was going to be like. And, um, and what happened was over time, all these things we did through patterns. So if we look at movement in a kind of a raw form just conceptually human movement is the transfer of energy in the form of force through the body and 
based on our design, the fact that like we have two legs and one trunk and two arms and one neck and one head, we've evolved essentially to do that in a certain way through certain patterns. And these patterns are developed. So like when you look at some animals out there, it's like they're born with like this innate thing already. Like uh, a horse might be born in the morning and be like walking around that afternoon or the next day. But humans, we go through this developmental process, the sequence for like the first year of our life, give or take, where we, we learn how to move. And learning how to move relies on environment. It's always a response to environment given the parameters that you have. So think of the parameters being like your design, these parts that you have. And then you have your environment. So think of you have the ground, earth, and you have like space, you have gravity, and then you have these three planes within that space. So uh, there's the sagittal plane, the frontal plane, and the transverse plane. So we, so movement is the transfer of energy in the form of force. So we're transferring force through our body through these patterns, through patterns in space. So that's, you know, and I'm trying to be objective here where I, and I know that that's like not necessarily perfectly possible or truth. Like on some level, when we talk about these things, objectivity, objectivity is kind of born out of subjectivity. So some of this could be wrong. This is just after a long time of thinking and playing with these concepts this is kind of where I arrive. Well, I think you're expressing any idea or concept ultimately, like this is what you think about movement in this moment. And hopefully in a couple of years, you'll have new it'll thoughts. Be yeah, yeah it'll, be, it'll be changing. I think yeah, it's, um, there seems to be this notion, I think, especially these days where like once an idea is expressed in public, then there's no backing away from it. And I think that's a really sad state of affairs. And certainly like I would very much like to have vastly different thoughts about all the stuff that I'm yeah. into, or I mean, I can't think of anything worse than like, if I, if I have it all figured out, then I'm just killed time until I die. I mean, I, I like the learning. I like the growth. I like the process. So hopefully, hopefully that would tie into politics. It's like, People get called out like, well, he said this in 1974. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully he was presented <laughs> with new information. He makes better decisions now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, absolutely. I mean, I feel like the training that I do now is the best I've ever done. And I would yeah. assume that a year from now would be better. Um, but coming back to these patterns. So we're basically responding to this environment based on our parameters. And we've developed to do this in certain patterns. So... The way I've learned it is there's basically five patterns that are kind of hardwired into our DNA. And, you know, there's a, everything else is like an activity that we might do, but it's kind of artificial on some level. It's some man-made thing. It might be through hobby or daily activity or sport, whatever. But within everything we do is one of these five patterns. And they really are born out of like the need to move around, to, to locomote. So for instance, when you're a baby and you're on the ground, you know, your options to move around are very limited. Your, the first thing that we do to really cover ground is to roll over, where you've, you know, you've made it maybe eight inches away from where you were before you started. But in that process, a lot of magic takes place. So this is the first real 
moving that we did when we were able to roll over. And we developed a lot of concepts along the way, the ability to kind of control our head in space, which kind of sets the tone for everything below. That's, you know, the control center of the nervous system, essentially. We have these systems where like our proprioceptive system and our vestibular system where information comes in and we're gathering information from our environment and we're learning how to respond to it. So like you might have recognized this, but a baby's head is like massive compared to its body relative to an adult. So like the little thing of lifting your head up as a baby on the ground, that's like the beginning of strength training, picking that bowling ball up and learning how to navigate that around and control it, essentially to control your movements. Um, and there's some other concepts too that we wind, that wind up showing themselves kind of farther up the chain, like the disassociation of one leg from our other, which when we walk, we see that where one leg extends and one flexes. And the disassociation of our, our hip from our spine. So these things started to take shape as we started to flop around on the floor. And then the next pattern is from the quadruped position. And this is the first time we really got to move around where we learned how to crawl. Um, and again, that's a continuation with controlling the head because you had to keep your head up to see where you're going. Kind of a basic survival need. Um, and then when we started to crawl, we really continued also the development of contralateral movement. That's where like your left arm and your right leg extend together and vice versa. And that's really developed. And that also shows up when we're walking. So then eventually we get up walking. So we have rolling is like the first real pattern. Crawling. And then we get standing. We have walking. And then there's two other patterns that we use to kind of go from a standing position to some low position. And one is hinging. And that's where like your center mass, think of like your hips, kind of go backwards in a more horizontal plane. And then one is squatting where it's a little bit more vertical and as an old colleague put it these are like constant across like space and time for instance if you take five people from five different continents over five different centuries and you said you know, go take a poop in the woods they all squat it's just something that's kind of constant across our species so and these are like built into everything so that gives a basic concept of like, well, what is movement? What is human movement? And everything could be built on that. So then getting back to, well, how do you, how do you comprise exercise? Like, what do you, what, how do you like create decisions of what to do? Well, getting back to the goal, like the direction that things point, when we combine these two things, it, al it allows the questions to just, the answers to the questions to arise. For instance, if we know we want to be, we know we're a human organism, we know we want to be the most optimal organism we can be for as long as we can be, we look, we could identify what are the qualities that are needed to do that. Now, there's a lot of kind of gray area with these qualities because you can't really have one and not a piece of all the other ones. They're all always in play, but to compartmentalize and to categorize like we we could label them so that we could focus on one thing. So I'll give you some examples. One could be strength. So strength would be like, how much force can you, you know, transfer through your body with control? So 
that's a quality. Now, if I was going to prioritize qualities, that's way up there because it's the one that makes up for the other qualities the most. Like if you take two people um, and you hold everything constant, but one person's a good bit stronger than the other, that's a, a huge advantage. Even if the, one, the other person doesn't move as well, enough strength might make up for that, even though they might be banged up a little bit along the way. I think like strength also, just everything involved in strength training makes the body more resilient. Like your tendons are going to be stronger. The bone density is going to go up. You're just, you become harder to eat. Yeah. Like, like yeah, harder absolutely. to kill, right? Yeah. 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 In fact, that strong first organization, I mean, they say, well, you can be anything you want, but be strong first, like build your platform on that. Right. Um, now I, I look at things a little bit different as far as um, when I'm in the order that I teach stuff. But when you're devising a program, that's like the meat and potatoes section of every program, like strength. And, and then strength within those patterns. So like with the training, it's why we load the crawl. We like we load the gait pattern from different positions. So laying down, quadruped, standing. And then we load, you know, the hinge, the, the squat, all this stuff from the different. Yeah, well, it doesn't necessarily have to just be through those patterns. The idea is like you could do an exercise that's not one of those patterns and it'd be totally useful. Like take um, take a bench press, for, for example. I mean, that's not a natural pattern. And some people would argue that pushing and pulling are patterns. I personally am of the belief that they're not really patterns, they're activities. But within them, there are patterns. So the question arises, okay, this is the activity. It's a strength exercise when you do a, a bench press. But it's not a pattern. But there's a pattern in it. So bench press is, I would say, pushing. So if you think about pushing in its most raw form, like imagine um, your car is in neutral and you're trying to push it down the driveway. Think about how you would set your body up to do that. You would basically wedge yourself between the ground and the car. You'd probably put your hands on the bumper or the hood or something and you'd stagger your feet. And that resembles the gait pattern walking. So. What I would look at, the way I would look at it is, well, what goes on in walking? Well, we're generating force from our center of mass, from our hips, basically, down into the ground. And when you apply a force, there's an equal opposing force. So when you apply that force into the earth, the earth is actually pushing back. That energy is coming back up the body. You're channeling or transferring that force through your body and then applying it through your arms into the car. So that's like, what that's what goes on in pushing it's the same thing that goes on in gait when we walk we generate force down the earth pushes back we move forward in our arm swing so taking a pushing activity or an exercise like bench press where you're training this quality of strength the idea would be how can you express those concepts of gait through that activity and you'll see this when you watch someone that's experienced at bench pressing, you'll see their legs burning holes in the ground. You'll see their their, their hips are going to want to pop off the bench. And there's a connection between their shoulders and hips where they're in relationship to each other because there's a transfer of force going from one through to the other. So you're, the question is, am I expressing that concept through this activity 
in a way that serves my ultimate goal, which is this longevity or quality of life idea. And then we could ask ourselves, well, is what I'm doing now, does this serve me? Because you can always lift more weight than you can lift well. And let's define well. So we've, we've talked about like one quality. So we got these five patterns and then we have this quality that we've identified as strength because we feel that that's a useful part of the long game. That's one thing that kind of keeps you out of a nursing home, just being strong enough to like take care of yourself, power yourself through your day. So another quality might be um, like competency, like how well do you move? And Greg Cook says this well, move well, then move often. So the order that we teach things is to move well first. And that is where those patterns come into play. Because if you move well through those five patterns, then you have this platform that you could build anything on top yeah, of. Yeah, it, it really does open up a whole world of, of freedom. I think that's what I notice most about the approach um, that I use today based off of our time working together. But, you know, I find like, like as someone, like I don't have like one thing that I'm into. I'm into a bunch of different like activities. That's how I find enjoyment in my life. But you know, climbing, stand up paddleboarding, cycling, like all this stuff, I tend to do well with. Even though I don't spend a whole lot of time, I don't train for the bike. I don't train for climbing. I train at the gym to have that foundation and dial in those patterns, and then that training allows me to. I don't know, just have more access to the world because of, you know, just, there's no limitations there. Like yeah. there yeah. yeah, well said. Yeah, so um, where was I? Oh, yeah, so competency. So when we say, like, moving well, we're coming back to that reality of what we are. We're an organism in space. We got three planes and we got gravity. So it's really a question of, like, how well do we control ourselves through patterns in those parameters. So like for instance, if you're walking, you're producing force in this uh, sagittal plane. So for those of you listening, think of that as like, you know, it's, it's, it's forward, forwardly. So to produce force in that direction, you have to control force in the other direction. So when one leg comes off the ground as you go forward, there's a lot of information that hits the body in those two other planes. So they really come into play. Anytime you're like on one foot or your base of support is somewhat challenged, where you know you're not bilateral, you have your legs like shoulder width and you feel nice and stable, those planes are very exposed. So, you know, when you're talking about competency with the gait pattern or walking, you know, it's it's how well do you control yourself within these planes as you produce force and transfer it through your body. So, and that, and based on what quality you're practicing would determine like what tool you use. So for instance, when you're training competency, the biggest tool you're going to use is gravity. You're just going to rely on these environment, these natural environments. And you're more likely to be like on the floor, kind of going through the same process that we originally had to do. I mean, this is the way we learned how to movement how to move. We were on the floor, flopping around, crawling around. And as an adult, we kind of have to unwind usually like years of bad habits and compensatory strategies. And what better way to do it is to learn it the way we originally learned it. So that I find is usually the environments we put ourselves in to get the response to 
create change, it's in a positive way. Positive meaning it aims in that long-term direction. So, and we might use other tools too, like you know, rubber various types of rubber bands, things that we could kind of play with gravity. And, and rubber bands meaning like those like long leg workout bands that you can yeah not, like, not like little rubber bands yeah, yeah. you like tie up uh, you know bag of chips in your kitchen with or something yeah. like um, rubber bands that we'll either put on our body in some weird way or attach to some external anchor yeah. and pull on ourselves in some way so that because you can't outthink it like on and I'm I've always I've gone back and I'm not I don't think I think the jury's still out on this like I don't know what amount of our movement is or should be or whatever is like conscious relative to subconscious but what i what i believe is that if you try to just override you know how you move with your conscious thought it's not a very authentic change of behavior like let's say your your right foot turns out to the right in a funny way and then like you walk around all day thinking well i'm going to just make my foot straight so I'm going to consciously straighten my foot every step well the moment like a tiger snaps up behind you and you just bolt you're going to revert back to your default mode that you've been programming because that behavior hasn't had the envi- you haven't had the environmental stimulus to create that change at an authentic level so that's where rubber bands come into play because we can manipulate and gentle forces from different directions and associate them with our fascia lines through our body so that our brain has the sensory input coming in that we could then respond to. Because you can't really respond to fake information. Like you need information to respond to it. So the rubber bands are really useful. And I would take those two qualities like competency and strength and say those are the things to spend the most time on. Because those are the things more likely to keep you out of a nursing home. Like those are the things that will keep your quality of life highest and allow you to take care of yourself and do the things you want to do late in life. Um, Like when I think of my goals, I think of hopefully one day having like a great grandkid and being able to, you know, they're going to be down low, like to be able to get down and play with them and do those things or to be able to easily get up and down off the ground. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that even before like thinking about, you know, (laughs) the end of your life, like that being problematic, I think, I mean, more and more, I see people, you know, I'm 36, I see people that are my age who are like, oh, well, you know, I can't run because my knee hurts or whatever. And then they stop running. And if you're, your body is highly adaptive, so if you're, if you no longer do that thing, it's not going to be adapted for that thing. Like, it's not often, like, going to, it's not often that People be like, oh, well, I hurt my shoulder. I don't know, like putting a mug away or whatever. Like, or it's like closing the car door or some like random thing. And it's not that activity that causes that dysfunction, the dysfunction being pain, is the lack of doing that beforehand. So the more time you invest on the front end with strength training, focusing on competency, then your body's better able to meet the demands that are, again, being like placed on it. So there's um, this, like for me, again, with like the lower back pain I had for years until I started strength training and, you know, 
deadlifting properly and squatting and just being able to move a little bit better. It's no longer an issue. But I don't think that, you know, the, pre- the work we do in the gym is strictly for being grandparents and picking up the right. kids. It's like for today, yeah, like yeah. have more freedom today. Because I think, you know, like your physical activity doesn't have to end at 20. And I think it does for a lot of people. Like, you know, they're done with college and then they're like, oh, I'm getting older. That's why my body hurts. I'm like, no, like you just stopped maintaining it. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know. I heard a funny quote the other day. It was like, if you're in your 20s or 30s, like enjoy it. Because when you hit 40, the engine light comes on. You know, What's and bullshit. like, does it, yeah, is that really programmed in this? Does it have to, if you give all, you know, the nutrition substrate you need for good living and you stay active and you get good sleep and you have reasonable, you know, light hygiene, like, does it have to? And, um, and I think now that more people are awake to that, you're seeing more people in their fifties and sixties and seventies thriving Yeah, because they value it. And they they allocate their time accordingly to their values. Right. And, you know they're I'm I'm always so inspired when I find someone that's like really up there in age and they're just killing it. And yeah. it's like heck yes, man! Like yeah. show us the way. And uh, well, and the analogy of the car is so uh, played out, but it's true. I mean, you wouldn't never get your tires rotated. You wouldn't put oil in it. Right. Like, and if you want, your body will. Like, certainly, like, age is a reality and, you know, there's deterioration of certain components of our body, but there's so much that can be done through lifestyle interventions to keep things running well for a really long time. Um, Yeah, we have a lot more control than we are aware of, of our our outcomes, I think. And, uh, And usually when we... Don't get the outcomes we want because we're usually in our own way on some level. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it could be because of you know trauma or belief systems or whatever. Or I think just, just the barrage of shitty marketing. In, like, <laughs> That's probably part of it. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's just yeah people are always trying to sell you like a quick fix to you know the stuff that is hard or frustrating. Like I think yeah. you know now I have a really positive relationship with the gym, but. Um, yeah, it wasn't something that was super easy for me for the longest time. It was intimidating. Um, I didn't get it. And like, it, there's discomfort involved in going to the gym, or there's discomfort involved in like making a lot of these changes. Again, speaking from a personal level, like um, it's pretty uncomfortable stopping smoking like that. So I was like, I still like I slow down when I'm walking by someone who's smoking a cigarette. Like I might like stall my steps a little bit. Um, you know, like getting making sure that I'm eating in a way that serves me. Um, like there's discomfort in making that adjustment. Um, there's discomfort in aligning my week and my schedule around my time at the gym. Like I know that I need to make that a priority. I know that my quality of life is better. Um, in the moment though, like I think we're always going to gravitate toward comfort because speaking from like an evolutionary psychology standpoint, like, it doesn't make sense for our brains to expend energy if there's no real need for it. You know, like there was a time when 
You had to hunt. You had to hunt. You know, like calories weren't as abundant. So to go out there and just spend calories for no reason, your brain's like, what are you doing? This is a huge mistake. You're going to die. You're wasting away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we gravitate toward comfort, which in the moment works well. But, um, you know, if we're always in our comfort bubble, like slowly that bubble gets smaller and smaller. Um, hmm. But, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. But then, you know, once you get over the hump, you're just referring to because... You know, we are such habitual creatures like you. Those those environments could become sanctuaries. Like oh, for sure. Now, like when I flop on the floor to stop start my training session, like I love it, and like yeah. I don't want the floor to be soft. I want it to be hard and edgy and push back on me. And you know, I w- I want to I want that input, and I'm like grateful for that floor to push back on me and I'm grateful that I have the time and the space to work on it and it becomes you know it becomes a meditation it's like when you don't meditate you know the activities you do are generally not meditative but once you have some experience meditating and you know you're tapping into this like inwardness inwardness if that's not a word it should be inwardness then then like it could be applied and translated to the other things you do your other activities and exercise becomes meditation or your your work or you know chopping wood or whatever it is tasks around the house can become um like therapeutic almost yeah i mean i would certainly argue that i think you know just having conversations with athletes one of the things that they might not be aware of on the the forefront but if you have a long enough conversation with them part of the reason they gravitate toward these sports is that mental peace because there's that flow state and the flow state is when you're in that space where uh, the demand just barely meets your skill level and we just psychologically tend to do well in that flow state Um, so when we're at our limit trying to make whatever the thing has happened and we're just barely finding success it's where we tend to thrive and so that that also is very much in line with meditation and mindfulness. I think part of the reason that I did gravitate toward running so quickly during that transitional period in my life, like six years ago, was the mental piece. It helped assuage the anxiety, the depression, like all that stuff that, you know, made life very uncomfortable. There's something about that physical activity that helps me you know, become more present, even though I don't think I was fully aware that that was what was happening in the moment. Um, and I mean, connecting with that mindfulness piece is also just incredibly powerful. Um, yeah. Yeah. How did you just say flow state is when you're, de- how did you phrase There's that? There's like a, flow? they, I've, uh, read too many books i forget which one i <laughs> i got this from but basically there's like you know a y-axis and x-axis and like so here's like the your ability level and then here's the uh challenge of whatever the task is and so there's this graph and so when the the ability level intersects with the challenge so if it's here it's super boring gotcha right it's like you don't need to be present for you're it. you know like I think, yeah, exactly. Like, you can kind of autopilot it. Like, you'd probably get away with deadlifting, a ten, like, just the bar. And you probably don't need to be as mindful. I think probably if you're 
into mindfulness, you can make that a mindful experience right. that could actually be more of a challenge. Like, how do I become present with a, with something where the novelty or the stimulus isn't as intense? Uh, and then beyond that, it becomes defeating. It's like, okay, I'm trying to lift up this thing. It's not going anywhere. Like, it can be an uncomfortable area to be in. Um, so we really want that sweet spot mm. to to find that flow state. Um, Which is really like bringing you present moment. I mean, that's what flow state is. It's like yeah. this, you are intensely present. Yeah, exactly. And practicing that in itself is good for anxiety or depression because on some level, you know, anxiety is being worried about things that haven't happened yet. Yeah, depression is being upset about things that are already happened. Yeah, exactly. So right. anytime, anything that could bring into the present moment, I guess would be useful. Yeah. That's great. Um, hmm. What were we talking about before that? Movement, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, let's finish up that movement. Well, on. so, you know, we went over, I mean, just to kind of like recap everything you went over, we went over your journey with a uh, triathlon training, how you eventually got into Strong First, then you got into the um, FMS with uh, Great Cook, and then from there you transitioned into talking about the um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, gave you context through which to... Um, you know, when working with clients to apply exactly yeah. so you know i think you got i i'm kind of hearing that you got like a lot of technical knowledge from these different certifications you know working with joe and then um the a lot of the application again was for, or the philosophy around your training approach was derived largely from zen and art of motorcycle yeah business. basically and i guess you know i get uh, cool question a lot about like well what's the best thing to do and you know uh, that, that's not the depends. easiest yeah that's a that could be a total rabbit hole but um i guess to sum this up I, hopefully a little quicker like we've talked about two like qualities strength how much force can you move and which also that gets kind of confused for some people like you'll hear people say well, I'm out of shape. Every time I walk up a flight of steps or something, I'm out of breath. And they think they have to do more like cardiovascular training. And cardiovascular training is really useful and important. But I really find that to be more of a strength issue. Like, for instance, if you go up a flight of steps and there's a dozen steps, but every step is like 30% of your capacity, then when you've done a dozen of them, it's kind of tiring. But if you could walk up a set of steps and you had, let's say, 100 pounds on your back, then when you just walk up and you have 10 pounds of groceries or whatever, you know, every step might be 5% or 10% of your capacity and a dozen of them is no big deal. So a lot of times things are kind of misinterpreted as, you know, a lack of strength as other, as a lack of another quality. So moving well and then getting strong around that movement, I would say is where you want to spend most of your time. Now, there are other, other qualities, like, you know, we, we, I just mentioned cardiovascular. I mean, there's a couple of different ways to train your cardiovascular system. The common ones that I think are most used are like HIIT training or high-intensity interval training, which definitely has value, but it also comes at a bit of a cost. Um, there's a lot of metabolic waste produced with it, and it's not just because of the energy system you're tapping into, it's... Um, it's, it's not ideal, I think, for your 
kind of everyday go-to routines, though it can be very useful. And I personally, when I do it, feel good. Like I like how it makes me feel, but I do feel like it could beat up the body a little bit. Um, another approach to cardiovascular training is really getting into your, your oxygen system where you're doing what would be considered like zone two, which is like uh, you're below your anaerobic threshold. And those are generally longer duration, lower intensity. And, the, and a lot of, there's a lot of debates on like how to measure that. And you could, get re, you could really nerd out on how to measure that. I mean, some people literally test their blood every workout to see if they're, you know, how much lactate they're producing. But I don't think that's very reasonable for the average person. The thing that I use is can you, can you keep your mouth closed? So like if you're, uh, you know, on a treadmill walking uphill or going for a walk or a jog or run or you're on a bike or something like that and you could keep your mouth closed, I feel attacked while we're talking about this. Because <laughs> my that, mouth is always open. That's a, that's a good sign, though, that you're not working too hard to get out of that zone. Yeah. So think of like working as hard as you can without needing to tap into mouth breathing. And um, I feel like that's just a good uh, I, you know, concept to lean on when you're practicing that. And you know, you, I don't think you could really overdo that. The problem I have with zone two is it's just time consuming. So, I mean, I remember... Like the coach I used to have, he was, I think, the best at application. The problem is like you really needed a flexible time schedule because you could do seven exercises to prepare for like the one, for like one activity. And and that might just be for your right leg. Then you got to go through them differently for the left leg. And it's like what I found that that book gave me was the structure to like package things in a, on a realistic level for the average person that has, you know, maybe three to five hours a week to devote to training. How do you allocate your time to get the most value? Mm -hmm. And the way I look at it is you spend a good amount of time on, um, competency. You spend a, a slightly more time on getting stronger. And you fit in once or twice a week where, you know, you have these long bouts of zone two training and you don't have to do it all year long, but, you know, I would say at least eight months a year, you're fitting that in somewhere. Um, and that allows you, without getting too um, detailed in the physiology, allows your mitochondria, which, which is kind of where we produce the energy in our cell, to become more efficient, which is very useful for a lot of reasons. But... Um, you know, those are the qualities that I find are really important. Now, within strength, you could kind of add this other quality of like power, which is essentially adding like a speed or velocity component to that force transfer. So I'll give you an example. Um, you could take the same, you could take one pattern. So let's say you're taking um, the hinge pattern and you could train all these qualities through one pattern. So for instance, if you're practicing competency, you might be hinging where you have like a rubber band pulling on you in a way that feeds some kind of compensation that you have so that you're moving in a direction to correct it. If you're trying to get stronger, you might deadlift, which is, you know, the full expression of like, how much load can you bear through this pattern? Um, but if you lighten that load and add a speed component, and that's where I think the kettlebell is just probably a the, the best tool to use, 
And you could take the same pattern, that hinge pattern, and you could swing a kettlebell or snatch a kettlebell. And you're training this idea of taking load and you're adding this velocity component where you're being explosive. Um, but then you could also lighten the load further and play with your reps so that you have more reps or start to squeeze the amount of rest you're giving yourself. And you could start to train the cardiovascular system or the pulmonary system. It's all the same pattern, just based on what quality that you're focusing on would determine the tool you use and how you use it. So your what's and your how's are always driven by your why's essentially. Um, and if you just ask those questions, you could kind of go down an algorithm that'll spit out your answer, what to do today based on whatever your current reality is. And that's going to be different. Like for instance, if you and I were training together, I mean, we're probably fairly similar, but if you took two people that are, you know, of very different conditions or strength levels, like they could train the same qualities through the same patterns. Yeah, you're just scaling only, up and down the The only thing intensity. that might change is like what tool they use to do it. What's going to be appropriate for them so that it still serves. And if you tra- take your training seriously, you're going to get off track. Like you're never going to always be in some linear path to that goal at the top of the mountain where, you know, you're whatever. Well, there's never enough time to... I, not even just like time, but allowing your body to recover. I, and there's a reason that the top level athletes specialize in one thing and then they're sacrificing other movement qualities because they have specialized in this one thing. So if you really dial in and just get a massive deadlift, I would argue it's probably going to be pretty challenging to do some other big lifts well. I think just after a while, the volume and intensity requires so much recovery that you can't devote adequate time and physical resources to to the other patterns. Yeah, I mean, I guess everything has a cost. And I guess the approach, and you know, I mentioned that there's always like a overlap. Like there's a, even if you're standing still, there is a competency component of that. The fact that you're upright, you haven't fallen over. Uh, there is a strength component to that. The fact that you are producing force in the ground enough to not fall down. There is a power. There is a velocity to how fast you're pressing the ground. It's just so low that you don't notice it. Right. And there's a duration and a capacity component to it by how long you're doing it. So all these qualities are always kind of uh, mingling with each other and overlapping. But, you know, for sanity and for structure, like, it's, you could just, categorize which one you're focusing on and there's a lot of ways to compile a program an example would be to like spend some time uh, warming up by working on competency where you're kind of multitasking so as you go through these developmental sequence patterns you're you're also warming up the body preparing it for more physical activity and then when you get to your strength section you could pick a couple patterns or activities to work through. And then when you get to, let's say, your uh, conditioning or cardiovascular um, section, you could pick, you could either reinforce those patterns with different tools and exercises that are within the same patterns, or you could look for a more balanced approach where maybe you train different patterns through that quality on that day. And then on another day, you switch those. So after you go through your competency work, maybe you've trained strength through a different pattern, the, uh, the one that you didn't train the day before, 
and then through when your cardiovascular practice, you're training the opposite patterns that you train for your strength. So there's a lot of ways to do it, and that sometimes that depends on kind of how many arrows in your quiver, like how much time, how much practice you've had under your belt already, and kind of what tools are available to you. Generally, the more conditioned you are, the more practice you are, kind of the more things you have to choose from if you want. But ultimately, you always want to just stick with like master the box first before you go outside the box. Like never lose sight of the basics. Like even something is rolling over. People look at this as this mindless activity. There's an infinite spectrum of quality of rolling from your back to your belly. Yeah, it's interesting um, in talking about like these core movement patterns. I remember again in just having gone through an embarrassing amount of books on like coaching and all this stuff, but uh, there is this one where the author was talking about how like there's this like wheel, and so in this particular case, it was talking about like just you know like quality of life, like certain things you need to do, um, like get your diet in order, movement, um, uh, like a few other things, and if your wheel is misshapen in that you have, or like think of like a spokes um, for like a wagon wheel, right? So like if one spoke, you spend a lot of time and energy in this one piece, mm. the wheel isn't going to work really well. Easy. So um, you know, then evaluating how you're moving, how everything's going in your programming, and then you could develop, put more time and energy into the other spokes to get a more rounded wheel, which kind of ties into what I was saying about specialization as well. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Then you have a lumpy ride. Yeah, exactly. Nobody likes a lumpy ride. Yeah. No one. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I'm glad I got this out today. People have been asking me. I don't really have um, my philosophy so much in writing. And I'm, I'm so used to the gym environment where I'm just teaching this one-on-one -on -one to somebody or in a small group class. And I guess there's been requests for me. And I've had, like, I guess I've been stuck on this, but there's been requests to teach people virtually. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I have to let go of the grip on some of my beliefs about it. I've always felt like when the pandemic hit and my gym was shut down by the government, like I got really like a bad taste in my mouth. I was like, you know, F this and I got kind of emotionally burned by it. And I also I felt like I didn't want it. Like I saw all these people around me switching to virtual and adapting. Mm -hmm. And I kept telling myself, well, I can't do that. Like, cause it, Were you highly attached to something? I was totally <laughs> attached. Because I feel like, well, this is the way I've always done it. Like, I need hands-on. Like, I push on my people. I, yeah. you know, I tap them here and I give all this feedback. And I can't do that over the computer. So I don't want to do it. I felt like I'm going to be handcuffed. I can't do my best work. So I didn't want to do it. And recently I've come, um, I mean, I guess I've realized that it can be done. It just has to be done differently. And... I've decided that I am going to be opening up a, a few spots of online coaching for those that are interested. So um, there'll be something soon that we'll announce on the channel where if you are interested in getting some one-on-one -on -one coaching for either at your home or at your local gym and some from the programming side that I'll make myself available. Um, so I'll keep you the audience posted on that. And also, um, to talk a little bit about Peter. One, Peter, I want to thank you for, you know, hanging out with me. Like, I built this, like, space here to do this <laughs> podcast in person. 
This is only the second one I've done. The first one was <laughs> with Molly, honored. my daughter, because she already <laughs> lives here. Um, but it's nice to use the space. I hope you guys like it for those viewing on YouTube. And um, I guess, you know, you're quite the talent yourself. So I would like to tell the audience if you're ever in like the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, um, Peter's somebody worth checking out. Peter is a very skilled massage therapist, and he's also recently jumped into something that I think he's discovering he really has a natural talent for, and that's photography. Yeah, um, I, I can give like a brief little rundown of what I do. So like primarily, I have a private practice where I do massage, and what I do is trigger point work, and it's just working with people that are experiencing discomfort related to muscle tension, um, and typically seeing really good results. I haven't lost any clients yet, but um, and that's my main thing. And then I do a little bit of, anybody? no, no, not, not oh, this nice. week. Yeah, no drama. Um, and then I do a little bit of coaching as well. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the movement classes. I would love to see you doing regular movement classes. I think it's a big adjustment, but like I've done a handful in the past and I really, Oh, the pressure, it's, man. Pressure. It's not It's not the <laughs> same as being with someone. I had the same reservations about doing it, but I found that I did really like having an opportunity to work with people because I think everything that we talked about today, I don't know how, how it's hard to fully understand all these concepts in an hour-long talk about what it is. But I do think if you yeah, had yeah. some sort of, you know, weekly class or something like that where people could, you know, log in, do the movement piece with you, even just doing like the movement prep stuff, I think you would really go a long way toward helping people lead higher quality lives, especially, and if you could structure it in a way where it's financially more accessible to a lot of people, you could have a really big impact. And I think you do have a lot of knowledge and I don't want to come off as like kissing your ass, but like, I think you do have a lot of knowledge, like you've invested a lot of time and energy in this. You are passionate about it, and I think it's disingenuous to try to fully represent everything that you can deliver in the movement space through an hour-long conversation. I think that some sort of online something would be great. I know we were talking about me, but... Well, actually, that being said, we do on our channel... Um, back when I was doing the mindful tip videos, there is a series of movement videos that are basically uh, variations of those five patterns. Um, I don't know what they're under, but I'll link to them in the show notes. But we do have, I think, about a handful of short videos in the five to 15 minute range that are basically going through the developmental sequence. Uh, there will be a little bit different variations, and that would be used as... Um, either like a daily routine just to get the body moving uh, or to train competency or to prepare you for more physical activity, whatever you'd be doing next. We can talk more offline, but I'm going to push you into doing some oh, live stuff because great. I think that you would really, I think that it might be an adjustment, but you would eventually start to thrive with that. Um, right. However, as far as like what I do, like a massage, some coaching, um, and then when we're not experiencing a pandemic, I do wellness retreats. Uh, my website for all that stuff is redbranchwellness.com. And then as Les mentioned, I also do a little bit of photography. Um, and that's under the Five Arrows Media. I do a lot of portraiture, work with athletes, really love events. Um, definitely got my dog <laughs> there because that's, you know, he's the most popular one uh, or popular model that I have. And um, 
And, oh, and then I guess, I don't know, I also do a good bit of uh, cycling. Yeah, so before we finish here, I just have to tell the audience a little bit about something recently you did, Peter, that is just kind of mind-boggling. I was there when it was like taking shape. We were at the gym, and we have a, a mutual buddy that opened up a deli nearby, and he threw... and. Peter had recently come off a charity bike ride. So I had done uh, 329 miles walking and biking across the state of Maryland to raise money for pediatric oncology. It was uh, with my buddy Justin Burke, who's this meteorologist. He has a pretty big following, and he does what's called the Maryland Trek every year. Um, and it was my third year participating. And after being with the organization for three years and connecting with more of the families that we support through that organization, uh, yeah, I just found myself wanting to do more of that work. And so it's a pretty grueling event, the Maryland Trek, where again, like we're walking a marathon in the mountains of West, Western Maryland. Um, and then we follow that up with like, you know, a 15 to 20 mile bike ride. That's um, every day. Folks. Every day for a week. And I really enjoyed that experience. And then we, uh, again, had this mutual friend who was opening a deli and is based on this deli that he and his father used to go to up in Cleveland. And uh, we came together in the span of about a week to do this, basically support this charity called Velosano up in uh, Cleveland, where all the money raised goes toward cancer research at the Cleveland Clinic. And I rode my bike 418 miles in, it was technically like five days, but I had like a half day on the beginning because I got rained out. And then a half day on the end. So I feel like I did it in four so days. So backtrack here. So <laughs> there's almost, so this was a Sunday. We're talking about this. Yeah. And our buddy says, Peter, I'll donate 10 grand to your charity if you ride from Cleveland to Fulton, Maryland, which is right between Baltimore and DC. From Cleveland to Fulton, but, you got, but it's next week. So this was a Sunday. The following Monday, Peter's in yeah, Cleveland with his bike ready to ride back. Yeah, it was a good time. I we raised, I, so like that, you know, we raised $27,000 before that, the Maryland track. And I raised almost forty grand this year for charity. It was incredible. And I was Great. really blown away because I think, just to, you know, not go on too long, what was really nice about that whole experience is that there's just so much chaos going on this year. There's a lot of people struggling, and I wasn't sure if, you know, that organization I support, if we were going to be able to raise the funds to do it. But something happened during both of those rides where people were coming out of the woodwork to, uh, to support just you know me the cause um and it was an opportunity for just a lot of people to rally around something positive and you know i was really moved by um just the outpouring of support and i think that we needed some i think that a lot of people needed something like that they needed some good news because the media these days is really dominated by uh you know just some some stressful stressful events and i think you know, more than anything, we need to, I think, create opportunities for connection, for, um, you know, just coming together to do something great. So it's really Well, you definitely really cool. did that. I think you inspired a lot just watching you. It's uh, impressive for those out there. If you like to ride 100 miles is, if you're not really used to it, is uh, 
is really demanding on the body. To ride 400 miles with very little notice over just a few days is uh, it's borderline crazy. I applaud you for it. Um, I find it just an admirable act and um, glad I was able to witness for it. And um, yeah, I'm really honored to just call you a friend, man. Yeah, Thanks man. for coming out today. We'll put a bow on this one. For the listeners out there, uh, really grateful for you tuning in today. I hope you got something out of it. If you have questions about any of the things we talked about, please send them our way. And anything that we talked about that required a link, we'll try to put that in the show notes. And I mean it, if you do come by the Mid-Atlantic region, reach out, maybe get a session, learn a little bit about movement, uh, get Peter to work on you, and, uh, and take your picture along the way. Hope you guys have a <laughs> great day. Not at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Be well, everybody.